Hi, I'm David Freudberg. This podcast derives from the Humankind Public Radio series, which I began hosting back in 1997. Our program recognizes how hard it can be, but also how necessary, for us to hold on to our humanity. So we've sought out people with stories that illustrate how they approach that quest. To aim high, to treat others as we'd like to be treated, to see others as more similar to us than different, to strive for patience and personal grace even in adversity, to be part of the solution, not the problem. We hope our podcast helps to reinforce and inspire your own quest. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. Most of the plays deal with um, with committing crimes or being in situations where you're tempted to commit crimes, or a lot of times it's about um, relationships to gangs. I mean, that comes up again and again and again, um, because that's the situation that most of the kids find themselves in. A gifted dramatist helps juvenile offenders write plays in jail that let them think through different scenarios for life. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. If her choice of theaters is any indication, Chicago playwright Mead Palodowski has a talent for the dramatic. Because these days, many of the plays she works on are performed at the Cook County Juvenile Temporary Detention Center. It's a tough audience, mostly 15 and 16-year-olds who've been charged with serious offenses, ranging from armed robbery to murder. A small group of the young inmates is selected to work with Mead in developing the plot and characters, and then to perform their play. These kids are in a very negative situation, so the play is their opportunity to show another side of themselves, to show a positive side of themselves, and to explore a positive side of themselves. So they know that that's the goal from the outset, that it's not just really entertainment. It's, it's about we're going to show the world that we can, you know, who we are and who we can be. I thought the mirror was stupid. Well, I mean, you're not stupid at all. You are Rolando's brother. I'm not very much like Rolando. You could be if you wanted to be. No, I mean, he's my big brother. I respect him and all, but I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to be locked up. See, this always been one of my dreams, paint pictures, paint images, make people stop and think about their lives. Do you remember when we in grammar school, you drew a picture of me? You yeah. made me look pretty. You are pretty. <laughs> you used to like me back then, Melissa. Hey. I like you too. Matter of fact, I still do. <laughs> hey, whoa, whoa! I got dreams, you got dreams, we got dreams. How many wanna live their dreams? How many wanna feel their dreams? The gifted ones got dreams, dreams, dreams. We got dreams.
think that people are afraid of teenagers, and I think one of the other things that we try to do is to break down that image, because especially now you look at the kids at the juvenile detention center, these are kids that people have been told they should be afraid of. You know, they've been called names like predators and, you know, animals and, you know, all kinds of things. And so I always invite a lot of people to come to see the show because they are always amazed. And the first thing they learn is that they're kids and that they're good kids and that they have potential and that they're very likable. So it gives you a whole different way of seeing the kids. And then people, we get more and more volunteers of people that want to come and be mentors and to come and, you know, be part of our whole sort of volunteer force around the place has really been growing. Mead Palodowski's work to present dramas by and for young people began in 1984 when she founded Music Theater Workshop as a creative way to reach youth considered at risk. The company has now developed 35 productions and tours extensively throughout Illinois, funded mainly by private foundations. Her efforts with incarcerated youth began in 1991 with a series of plays entitled Temporary Lockdown and later a special program on girls' issues called Fabulous Females. I was so full of anger, I didn't really care for nobody. For nobody. Anthony Wilson, now 23, first met Meade while in jail on a murder charge of which he was eventually acquitted. He was one of many kids at the detention center with a troubled past. We were selling drugs for the bigger boys, and we had our own little gang, little clique who kind of ran with them. But I was like, I'm tired of this little kitty stuff. I want to move to the big leagues. So I started hanging out with the big, the older guys, going to all type of places, you know, to sell drugs and stuff. And, um, you know, I built up a big kind of name for myself in the neighborhood. You know, I had a lot of people scared of me. I was 13 the first time I ever got arrested, mm-hmm. and I robbed the mailman. Jessica Calderon, recently released from the detention center, is now 16. And after that, I just got into a stronger stuff like armed robbery, you know, taking cars, stealing stuff from stores. I mean, not little stuff like, oh, I'm going to go to jail for a candy. I mean, I would take bunches of stuff. And that's just the way I thought everything, it was okay. I thought, oh, okay, I'm never going to get caught. Oh, I got one case. I'll go to court for it. It's going to get dropped. Then finally I caught an armed robbery case and they put me in jail. And after that I caught another case because I didn't learn my lesson. I didn't learn my lesson until the fourth time I was there. When you began this work in 1991, were you apprehensive? Well, my initial feelings actually were that I didn't exactly know what I was getting into. I had worked with, you know, gang kids and stuff on the street in alternative high schools, so it wasn't like and in the regular high schools. Um, but I had never been there. I never been where every kid was supposedly a problem kid. So it was definitely a different situation for me. So I sort of decided that the way I would go in was to sort of just go in without any judgments at all. You know, without, you know how you do that sort of as a clean slate? You just go in and you see what you're going to see. And you don't, you try not to have any expectations whatsoever. In that way so you can just sort of have a fresh view. But it did. what I did realize is that the kids didn't trust me. Um, so it took a while to build up trust and to figure out what that meant in that context. And what I realized it meant was that 
when I was going to come in, I had to come in. And if I wasn't going to come in for some reason, if something happened that I couldn't, I had to call and explain why I wasn't going to be there. You always had to, because these kids are kids who everybody in their lives have, has broken trust with them. So you have to always do what you say you're going to do. You have to explain, you know, and as you should anyway, if you're not going to show up for a meeting, right? But a lot of times, you know, people see these kids as, well, they're locked up anyway. If I come, I come. If I don't, I don't. Um, but it was important. And then when... In, in part, maybe just to show them respect. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That I'm, you know, they meant as certainly as much to me as I did to them. Almost invariably, incarcerated teenagers don't land in jail by coincidence. The turmoil of their early home life is often a setup for severe problems to come. And yet it's remarkable that the young music theater workshop participants I spoke with, all of whom had served time and have since been released, looked normal and healthy. Many hope to find careers in the performing arts. Today, Anthony Wilson, a part-time actor who also serves in the National Guard, is the father of two young children. At first, it was a pretty good life. I grew up in a pretty um, good neighborhood over, over here on the south side of Chicago. But then, once my mother got on drugs, everything turned for the worse. You know, I started living from um, going to live with my auntie to my uncle, to my other uncle, to my other auntie, to my sister. You know, I'm transferring from different schools. Then, at that time, I started to feel that Every time I went to a different family member's house, it was like, you know, I hear so bad things about my mother and why you got to be here. It got to the point that I felt that, you know, nobody loved me anymore. Sort of like when I was about 10. So then I really started acting up in school. Then, um, you know, my older brother and them, they was um, kind of gangbanging a little bit, but it wasn't that serious in that neighborhood at the time. Then once... You know, I started reading their little literature and stuff and started meeting actually hardcore, real gangbanging people who were out there doing it for real. That's when I thought, who loved me? I thought the gang, they loved me. That's who I fell in love with. That was my life from, th from that point on. And one day, some older guys came to me and a couple of my friends like, hey, you know, y'all want to sell some drugs, make some money and stuff like that. And at, at 11 years old, 12, I was selling drugs you know, running with the street gangs. And, and the older guys in the gangs, um, I was sort of like they prodigy. They was, I used to be told from older gangbangers that you're going to be the future of the, of the mob. One day you're going to be a king in this, in this mob. So at, at the age of 12, I had rank. So why do we have to wait until we get our college degrees? I think it'd be a good idea if you and your family moved out to projects and come live with me and Cicero. Cicero? Yeah, Cicero, imagine, your little brick bungalow, a little yard, garden, patio, instead of living in these high-rises where you got nothing but broken elevators and hallways that stink of urine. You got little kids selling drugs. Then I come to see you and I get mugged. Come on, what do you think? Hey, baby, how are you? I'm doing okay. Wow, what? Baby, what's wrong? I was just doing okay, but now, I don't know. So I'm just going to go to my room for a minute. How you doing, Corey? Well, he's upset about something, so never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to what we were talking about, though. Moving to Cicero? I don't know. What is it about 
the medium of theater that can reach young people in trouble? Theater is really a wonderful vehicle because when you do theater, I mean, when you see theater, you identify with the people on the stage, right? So then you can say, well, that character is like me. They're going through things like me. And so if, if I can identify with them um, and I can identify with their problems, I can also identify with their goals and their solutions. If you're actually a young person creating the piece of theater, then you can use the act of creating theater to, you know, to sort of put your life in the lives of people around you on the stage, but use it to to take your life one step further in that you can, you know, it's about you, but we spend a lot of time working on, you know, what are the goals, how to, okay, I've got this problem, I'm, I'm you know, committed this crime, I mean, I'm locked up, you know, or, or, or maybe I'm not locked up, or maybe we take a step, one step back further, I haven't committed it yet, what led me to do that, what could lead me away from doing that, um, what kind of goals could I set? How could I make this ending happy, in a sense? How can I set it in a, take a negative? And, and also, how can I take a negative? How can I learn from it and then put myself into a positive direction? And so then you can take it really step by step. They act the whole thing out. Um, and they end up somewhere, you know, sort of better than where they are, but possible. And the other thing is that when you're, you belong to a gang and you're out on the street and that, you are also creating a role for yourself. You, you know, everybody has a street name. They're making themselves important. They're getting respect. It is a role. So what you're doing is doing something they're already doing, which is acting. I mean, they really are. They're acting on the street. They're creating this part for themselves, and you're just changing what the role is. And the more conscious you then can become of it, the more conscious you can see that I can indeed take on roles, I can change who I am, I can change who I can be. Somebody looked at you a certain way, you didn't like them. But once I got the right in the plays, it was, hey, he could look at me, okay, that's his own thing. And it, it started to pull everybody together, because I've never worked, that was my first time working with all these different gangs in one place and being able to get along. You mean when you were in the process of developing yes. the script? Yes. So what was that like, to sit down with kids from other gangs for the first time and start to work with them towards something as opposed to working against them? Well, for the, um, for the first time, it was like um, I started to realize from that point that everybody is their own individual person. And no matter what other people done to you, like another gang, it's not that one person's fault. It's because somebody who wears the same colors as him and rides the same gang as him, that's not necessarily him. So allow me to reach out to him and hopefully they reach back to me so we can all just get along and have a good time and do what we have to do. A lot of times kids see things in, in black and white that, you know, I was presented with this problem and I had to do it, you know, and so they're not always, it, it, the, what happens in the play is it, it sort of stops time. So you can get inside the character, but you can also look at the whole array of choices. It stops time means? That you're stopping the action, you're taking a look at it, you're, you're discussing it with the other people you're writing the play with, so you're able to say what are all the choices in this situation. 
So, and I think the more that kids get into doing that, well, the more that anyone gets into doing that, just seeing what the choices and the consequences are and to examining them beforehand, then when you get into those positions, it's an easier reflex kind of thing to do. I have written poems and scripts um, about abuse. Lourdes Torres discovered her talent as a dancer while working with Music Theater Workshop. One of the scripts was called, it was just called um, Domestic Violence. It was about a girl who had a daughter, and she loved this guy, but she was scared to leave him because he always beat on her. And so she finally got the courage to leave. So it was kind of, I mean, in the middle of the, the, middle of the, in the, middle of the script, it was like kind of bad because he I explained in a lot of description on how he put uh, batteries in a sock and beat her, you know, stuff like that. And... You know, so I really got into it, and my I wrote another poem. It's just called called abuse, and she talks about how she wants to fly away. She wants to, but she's scared because she don't know how she, how everything's gonna go if she leaves him, if she's gonna die. You know. And do those images mirror anything that had happened in your own life? Yes, yes, they do. Um, my mother was in a very abusive relationship for nine years, and she was very, very terrified to leave him because she thought, you know, he was gonna come and kill her. So one day she just finally got the courage and left. What did that song mean for you? that I can do anything, you know, just don't, I know a lot of things will stress you out and a lot of things will get to you, but just put everything behind you, just try to control everything because, I mean, while I was in there, uh, some a situation happened. I mean, a girl lost control and, you know, she seen me out of the whole group and just, you know, hit me and... While you were rehearsing? No, it was just we were leaving upstairs to go to go eat, and we we're gonna come back downstairs to practice. And I guess she kept giving attitude to everybody that was working there with Miss P with everybody. And uh, you know they took her out to play. She was she didn't want to work with nobody. She didn't you know she was giving everybody attitude. So they took her out to play, and she was mad. So she seen me out of all the people, and she hit me, and I wanted to hit her back. I really didn't. I didn't get a chance to, but I controlled it because they were like. I wanted to stand up and I wanted to hit her again and they just told me don't because you're the only person that you know learn to play you can do it just calm down don't worry about it. it wasn't even worth it she hit you for no reason you didn't even do nothing you didn't even know her name you don't even know who she is so just control and Miss P helped me a lot too was that hard for you to resist the temptation to hit her back oh yeah because I have a very bad temper I'm I'm well not anymore I've controlled it a lot but I just used to react to anything. Like any, anybody say anything to me, anybody looked at me, I would just hit them for no reason. Just don't look at me. That's how I was. I know there was a case where the kids were writing a story that was to be performed before courtroom personnel, judges and prosecutors. Mm -hmm. And the original draft of it had everyone killed by the right. end of the play. Right. 
and you had sort of encouraged them to rethink that. Well, I sort of said quite plainly, I said, you know, that the play you're writing is going to be done in front of judges and people who are looking at you and who you are. And they're thinking about how much time you should get and, you know, and specifically what they're going to do with your life. And they, if they see everybody up on stage killing everybody, what are they going to think? And their mouths sort of dropped, the lights went out in their eyes, and they're like, oh, oh. So they started, it was interesting because it was like, it, it was also kind of a macho thing, I think, that, that, you know, they wanted to show how tough they were to each other. And so as soon as the reason for doing that was gone and it was a practical reason, then they could allow themselves to think about more sensitive things because it almost immediately turned into a father-son play where they really talked a lot about father-son relationships and turned out that none of these kids had had a father relationship. And so they really spent a lot of time exploring what it meant to have a father, what it would be like to be a father, you know, what they would have liked to have had from their father, if they had conversations with their father, what it would be, a lot, you know, what it would be about and what it would be like. Hmm. So it went from this one extreme to the other. Life without a father is a hard thing. We try to grow up in this game and mean something to believe in God, to do the right thing, to be responsible. That's what it means, that's what it means. I was just 11 years old, walking into the room. I was four years old, walking into the room. My mom is both my mom and my dad. She has to be both for all of us. She raised the both of us. She tried her hardest. She always taught us, you know, don't steal, don't do this. But it's like being in the streets where you live it depends where you live at and the type of person well it's more who you hang around with because I was hanging around since the age of 10 with bad I mean bad older people too I was hanging out with 22 year olds at the age of 10 and from learning from then I just started smoking weed and drinking and just out there doing bad stuff I mean I was out there bad but the thing that made me change I was treating my mom bad too my mom didn't have, I was always thinking my mom was against me. My mom wanted me locked up. But my mom put it, my mom's like, I care about you. If my mom didn't care about me, she wouldn't come see me when I was locked up. She would come see me every visiting day, come bring me all my stuff, come see me. And she don't have a car, so she would ride the bus for an hour just to come see me. How'd that make you feel? That's good. That makes me feel that I need to start respecting my mom. I only have one mom. And this life is short. I realized that my grandfather just passed away. Life is real short. Live it good, live it while you can. Activities at Music Theater Workshop, Mead Paladowski is obviously more than a drama coach to budding writers and performers who desperately need a chance or even a second chance. She recognizes and uses the power of drama itself, the stories of tribulation and stories of redemption, to transform the lives of actors and audiences alike. If you've ever gone to court, when you see a kid in a courtroom, they frequently, you know, they're, even if they're not shackled, they, their hands are put together as if they're shackled, and they sort of look like criminals. I mean, they don't, they don't speak much. Their heads are bowed. Um, so it's a totally different picture of the young person than what you get when you come to the play. Because here you see, on the play, you see a kid who has spent 
who's obviously gone through doing a lot of hard work because they do they always do a really good job okay and the, and the plays are I mean they're they're real plays they're long plays they're you know um, so they took some work to write they took work to put together they took work to memorize all those lines so this is not something that you know trivial um, and then you see this kid putting their whole heart and soul into it, you know, into making it the best play, because that's always, you know, the big goal. <laughs> this has to be the best one. And so you see potential. See, in one place you see someone, the, I guess, the potential to be punished, and in others you see the potential to be come back and to be a positive part of the community. And so it's a totally different view. And you see things happen to courtroom personnel that come in. I mean, in the the last play, the chief judge sat in the front row and he cried. And then afterwards, he asked for all the kids' cases and numbers and everything because he wants to track them. And I thought that's, I mean, that's the first time that's happened. He's new to the court system here, and that's huge. Do the parents come? Yes, we invite all the parents and actually make a big effort to get everybody there. We have volunteers that that call everybody. You know, we don't just rely on invitations. Somebody calls everybody, makes sure that they're coming. And, and in fact, the last time, I mean, one of the most important things is that the parents come because the kids put so much effort into it. And then if the parents, and we have the special reception in play, and if the parents don't come, it's really traumatic, you know. it's very Kids are really hurt by yeah, that. Yeah, they're really hurt. I mean, here's kids who frequently have sort of been abandoned by their parents. Anyway, here's an opportunity to show their parents that they're doing something wonderful and positive and then the parents don't come. And actually in the one of the, the last fabulous females, parents had said they were coming. So our volunteer was like, you know, that's great. And then they didn't show up. So this time we actually went and picked parents up <laughs> to make sure they came because what had happened, we'd done these talent shows and one of the main kids in Lockdown 10, one of the rappers, you know, they had said they were coming but had not come to any of the talent shows. So we finally said, well, if we picked them up, would they come? And they said yes. They just didn't. It was hard for them to get there. So we sent volunteers out, you know, for a couple different people to go and pick the parents up. That's so one way It's one way to pack a house. Huh? <laughs> yes. You go and pick up your audience. But it's such an important thing. <laughs> you know, it really is important that the parents come. So if that's what it takes to get them there. Because what happens sometimes, we had that this one girl in the first Fabulous Females where our volunteer called and kept saying, you know, you have to come, you have to come. And the woman said, no, that girl, there's nothing good about her. She's totally negative. You know, I've given up on her. I'm not coming. And so the volunteer kept calling and calling and, you know, said, please reconsider, please reconsider. So the mother came. And the girl saw her mother when she was, you know, performing. And she looks <laughs> like I knew she just jumped off the stage. And she was in her mother's arms and they were sobbing together. I thought we were never going to get her back on the stage. But, but it was, you know, a really important moment because, you know, what, had, what would have happened if her mother hadn't come? Um, How do the parents react? to the content of the plays? I think that they're very moved by the experience because it's clear that there's a lot of love being put out from the kids to their parents. Um, sometimes very specifically, we did in the first um, Fabulous Females, there was a song called Mama, I'm Sorry, in which the kids apologized for being there. And um, it was a beautiful song that a girl had written. And, you know, apologized for all them, them having to come to court and going out of their way. And then actually during the song, the girls handed their mother 
a, a heart that said, I'm sorry. And, it, and we were, everybody, the girls were sobbing, the mothers were sobbing, the parents were sobbing, I was sobbing. I mean, the whole room was just sobbing. And it was this huge healing moment. Mead Paladowski, Artistic Director of Chicago's Music Theater Workshop. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Studio recording by Bill Wangerin. Editorial assistance from Brendan Tapley. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1 800 5 Listen. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment on playwrights becoming free is Humankind Program number 39. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.